this file is protected and classified under congressional and federal authority. The repository of climatology is designated as the responsible owner, and access is strictly controlled by written permission and one-time password. You are not allowed to copy, transcribe, remove, alter or otherwise tamper with any of the material. Severe penalties will apply in the event of non-compliance. The illicit recordings made by Drs. David Forrester and Susan Lystrammer should not be relied on beyond the provision of contextual background to the events that unfolded subsequent to the anomalous out-of-specification transition of key geosurvey assets to a non-functional mode. You have been warned. I'm going to die very soon. And I'm stuck in a garage. It's insane, ironic, and mad. But I have to get this on the record. It's quiet. I don't think they stayed here to watch. They don't know where I might go when I get out. If I can get out. If they don't come back. No more sounds from outside. So I can talk. How to make sense of this? Okay. The start. No. Well before that. Right. When I was twelve, I was given a weather station for my birthday. The Sky Machine by Martin Liddermont Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont Chapter 1 An Excess of Security My weather station was made by some big name in British educational toys. It came in a yellow and red cardboard box. It had illustrations of a rosy-cheeked boy showing his parents his skill as a weatherman. On one part of the lid he was holding a parane gauge. In another he was taking a reading from a barometer. At the bottom of the picture he was pointing towards a looming thundercloud while on a walk with his family. They were putting on hats and unfurling umbrellas, getting ready for the predicted storm. I soon found out that my parents weren't interested in forecasts, so I hid my disappointment and set up my weather station in my father's garage. The garage didn't have a side entrance, so to get in I had to raise the metal door, which was stiff and tended to jam. My father had tried to mend it, by which I mean he had applied his usual DIY approach of forcing it too hard and too far, leaving it with a permanent lopsidedness. Its catch and its dented runners were heavily greased, and there was congealed dirt and rust which would rub off on my hands. In the garage, just like in here, the air was always cold, same as in a cellar. It smelled of wood and damp, rubber boots, three-in-one oil. 
cobwebs covered the heads of the garden tools that were propped against the brickwork. Screws and nails of various sizes were stuffed into cloudy glass jars. There were pieces of timber standing waiting to be used. The concrete floor was stained with patches caused by motor oil and petrol, and it felt rough through the thin soles of my summer canvas shoes. It was a very quiet and peaceful place. Even the spiders seemed to sleep, waiting for a change in the world. The end wall of the garage faced the garden. It was filled by a long, grimy window with a cracked frame. In front of it, there was a bench, covered in a collection of old tools. I had moved these to one side and installed my weather station control panel where the most light would fall on it. Control panel. It was a slanted plywood frame with holes cut in it for the cheap barometer and thermometer that had come with the kit. Additional fake dials and switches were printed on the front to make it look more scientific. The wind speed indicator was just a blinking bulb connected up to contacts in a plastic anemometer that whirled away on a post that had been hammered into the potato patch. The last piece of equipment was a humidity gauge. It had a bulb that I moistened and then I swung it round on a piece of string before reading it. All the figures were written down in a small notebook using a scratchy biro whose nib dug into the lined pages. The notebook eventually got cold and soft in the damp garage and after a while the printed card peeled off the plywood frame so as a piece of scientific kit my weather station left a lot to be desired but I adored it. I would stand for a long time imagining myself at the hub of a futuristic metrological centre directing the efforts of white-coated researchers and making breakthroughs in understanding. When I looked at the growing number of notebook pages covered by my straggly numbers, I wasn't sure what I ought to do with my observations. I knew that amateur weather watchers should be regular and thorough in their record keeping, and I'd read about John Dalton, the 19th century scientist who'd get up every morning and note down the readings for the day, every day, literally, to the end of his life. God, what a thing to admire when you're a child. Maybe I had an instinctive understanding that the capture of information held out the prospect of control over its sources. Control over the great swirling and churning vortices of air and water that drive the weather, for example. <laughs> I don't know. I do remember asking my physics teacher what I should do with my data. He gave me a surprised and almost startled look. After three decades of standing in the corner of the school playing field explaining the workings of a Stevenson screen, here was a child, one of the enemy, crossing no man's land between the trenches and holding out the hand of friendship. You could submit the readings to the Met Office, he grunted. I suppose they might find a use for them, but if you're really that interested, then you should pick some science subjects like I've told you and go to university and see where it takes you. Well, where my interest took me eventually was here. And now, university seems like several lifetimes in the past. And where that particular conversation got me that day was into a fight. It happened when I was accused of sucking up to the teachers. Andrew Phillips started it. He was a small, weasley boy who'd attached himself to one of the oversized fifth years and was working on his gangster persona. What were you whispering to old Fluff about? He hissed at me as we waited, shivering outside one of the classrooms. 
The school had been built on an old US Air Force hospital site, complete with regimented Nissan huts and covered concrete walkways that joined them. The huts were heated by exposed steam pipes which ran along the covered ways. They were swaddled in raw asbestos fibres, peeling and splitting and held in place with broken bits of wire netting. Phillips was sitting on one of those now holding court while a group of minor acolytes hung on his utterances. He cocked his head and waited for my answer to his question. What were you saying to sir? he chanted. No, nothing much, I stammered. I inwardly kicked myself for sounding pathetic, but I'd discovered that the less information you provided to people like him, the less ammunition they had to use against you. Not a great tactic, really, and it didn't work that time. Oh, the teacher's pet just wanted to have a chat, he sneered. What a spiffing time we're having. Oh, do let me take charge of the weather station, sir. Oh, do, do, do. Well, that pushed me over the edge, and I pushed him over the pipe. He went backwards into the mud, ripping his trouser legs on the wire netting and coming back at me, swinging. We flailed away at each other and pulled and shoved for a bit before a prefect separated us. We ended up glaring at each other in the corridor outside the staff room for a few lunchtimes until we'd worked off the punishment. But the incident made me more determined than ever. I went to university, as suggested, did my degree, decided to stay on to do a doctorate specialising in cloud formation. That was probably a mistake, because afterwards it took me a couple of years to get a job, and that was one for which I was vastly overqualified, feeding numbers into a primitive computer at a coastal research station. The one good thing I can take away from the story, apart from the memory of Andrew Phillips going backwards into the mud, was my conviction that the science made it all worthwhile that there was a pure and clear world of facts that transcended the nasty tribalism of this one. I was going to collect those numbers and I was going to add them to a central store of knowledge somewhere because something good would eventually come of it. It felt prudent, like an animal storing food in its burrow against the winter. It was the same kind of obsessive drive that got John Dalton, the careful, frugal Quaker, up and out of doors for 47 years, trudging off through the Manchester rain and gloom, breathing in the factory smog. His payoff was a conceptual leap. He realised that atoms of elements combined to form compounds. His genius got him a statue erected by civic subscription and a place in scientific history as the founder of chemistry's atomic theory. When he died, the city turned out and gave him the equivalent of a state funeral. What was that? Was that footsteps? I've got to stay still, but it's so cold. Oh, here I am in the present again, in a garage, shivering and smelling motor oil and rubber. And I'm in absolute dark. And they are outside, somewhere. Oh, this is madness. But it's real madness. For a while I thought it was a crazy dream. People say that, don't they? A crazy dream. And all dreams are crazy in some way. But this? What do you do when someone from a film something from a film steps out of the safe flat two dimensions of the screen and grabs you by the throat how do you make sense of the world then still just stay still and think 
look for a way out of the mess. Perhaps I could go abroad. I think they could reach out and snap my neck wherever I run to hide. Or I could go public with everything. Risky option. I'd sound like a crank, and it's a subject that screams madman whenever it comes up. Susan could have helped. She could have spoken for me like I spoke up for her. One of us in hiding, the other to the media to talk about what happened, oh yes. We could have done that. And if anyone is believable, it's Susan. But I have no idea where she is, or how to contact her. Our mobiles and our laptops are gone. We destroyed them before Orkney. No time to get hold of new burners. All our accounts closed. The equivalent of sweeping tree branches across the trail. And then the promise by that lock. Not to try to get in touch. Not to compromise each other. The absolute imperative. To stay safe. Despite everything... I hope she is safe. Somehow I don't think she is. Uh, it's always been about security, even from that first meeting at the Helsinki Zero Hour Climate Conference. The conference needed a large venue. That usually meant an anonymous exhibition center or a big hotel. This year it was a hotel a newly built one in Helsinki. The conference reception desk was at the mouth of a long, curving funnel of blue carpet and wooden walls, walls softly glowing with concealed LED lighting. Very expensive. I had a quick look at the main hall and the smaller rooms. Very nice. New presentation equipment and radio mics too. I looked at the programme. Amazingly, I was on the main speaking agenda not one of the side lectures. My reward for being the best in a pretty small climatology field. They'd used an old picture of me for the programme. Oh, embarrassing. So on the first day, I collected my recyclable bag of invites, passes, promotional literature and giveaways and lugged it to the breakfast bar. That's when I noticed the guard standing quietly in the corner of the room watching us scientists grab our weak coffees and lukewarm croissants. I carried my plate and cup out to the networking area and sat down at one of the tables. There were two more guards there, one by each doorway. Pretty heavyweight for Finland, I thought. As I ate, I became aware that someone was watching me. A woman with short reddish hair wearing a bright green zipped-up puffer jacket. She was sitting several tables away. Her breakfast was competing for space with conference papers and a laptop with multiple stickers plastered over its lid. Her stare was very direct, and it made me uncomfortable. For a moment I thought she was going to get up and cross the room to talk to me, but she glanced at the nearest guard, hesitated, and turned her attention back to her laptop. Those guards were making everyone nervous, it seemed. Such an odd experience to be surrounded by armed people when we were there to discuss something so, so important and dangerous that it made guns seem pointless. 
as though those weapons could stop the rising seas and the rushing onset of the deserts. Were we being watched, perhaps, as possible subversives? Were our calculations and warnings about climate change so politically dangerous? There was something insectile about those guards. Black shapes, a collection of angular shadows strapped together. The sense of deadly craftsmanship in the weapons and the body armour. Yes, like insects at first, standing there waiting by the hotel doors. And later that day, in the afternoon, as we visited local attractions in organised trips, they rode in white SUVs behind our coaches. Once we got over the surprise, they were less obvious and less intrusive. They stood calmly, watching as we got on with the business of saving the planet by procedure and by vote, supposedly. But I still felt intimidated and unsettled. Perhaps the Hawks had it right. A need for preparedness, to be ready for conflict, for sudden violence and even death. Security against terrorism, bag searches and now guns. These all seem to be checklist items to be included in any gathering of important people. All right, we scientists were not that important yet. But some of the other speakers at the event were. Politicians and actors were dropping in during the conference. The guards must be for them, I thought. At lunchtime on the second day, I realised I'd forgotten my phone's charger, so I went back to my room for it. I stepped inside and immediately registered that the light was on, the curtains were drawn, and that one of the black-suited guards was standing beside my bed. He was holding a small laptop that sat open, balanced on his forearm. He held it as though he were a waiter, bringing plates to a table. He looked at me and shut the laptop. Not suddenly, he did it calmly and deliberately, as if that was what he was always going to do at that exact moment in time. Then he seemed to search his mind for something very briefly, and he smiled without any humour. Security check, he said, and then as an afterthought, Sir. Okay, I said slowly. Absurdly, I was still standing in the doorway. My keycard was in my hand. Is there a problem? I don't think so, he replied. He had a slight accent and not finish. He stepped slightly to one side as if to make space. Please. It was an invitation, no, an instruction to come in. I moved forwards and stopped. He just stood there with that slight smile. He had all the trappings of the other guards, assault rifles slung across his back, webbing with rectangular and cylindrical pouches that looked like they contained hard objects, a black automatic pistol with diamond-shaped etching showing on the exposed grip, one black glove with reinforcements across the knuckles and the other glove wedged into his belt, leaving his fingers free to tap the laptop's keys. He wore a black peaked cap with a white logo, a simple spiral. I recognised that. All the guards' uniforms were marked with it. Everything looks fine, he said. Sorry to have disturbed you. 
and he tucked his laptop under his arm and left with no explanation. I didn't feel like stopping him and asking him for one. It played on my mind, so in the evening I called the go-to number for our conference fixers and asked them about the security arrangements. The person I spoke to seemed unsure. They're contracted out, he said. To whom? I asked. He didn't know. Oh, it's so cold in here. <laughs> the British climate. There's never a good season for running away. No, the fear makes it worse. What if I can never get out? Sitting here in the dark, there's no sense of a roof above my head. If I could see my breath, would it drift up and up into the cold layers of the atmosphere next door to space? Would it resolve into a cloud of fine ice particles? Am I breathing out a cirrus? Cirrus was the first cloud name that I learned when I was 12. From the ground I looked up and tried to make sense of those white patterns dabbed and sketched on the huge curved plane of the sky. I could see some clouds slide past others, obscuring them, so the awareness of height was always there. But I took a long time to conceive just how high Cirrus ride. Imagine standing on a tall mountain, a very tall mountain. Think Everest. Can you envisage it? Hold it in your mind's eye, that chisel of a peak, gouging a pale, smoky gash in the sky as the jet stream drags its belly across the summit. How long could you stand there, nearly nine kilometres up, your head poking through the roof of the troposphere, absurdly dressed in everyday clothes? In July, the average temperature is minus 19 degrees centigrade. You're effectively standing in your domestic freezer, in January, it can be as cold as minus 60 degrees. The wind can top 270 kilometers per hour, but let's imagine there's a rare moment of relative calm when it drops to a gentle 60 kph. Maybe even lower. Imagine a few seconds of absolute stillness. But hold back your excitement. You are dying after all. Your extremities are being attacked by frostbite, and that's the tingling you can feel in your fingers and toes. Don't get distressed. They'll soon be numb. There's insufficient air to breathe. Lack of oxygen and pressure is destroying your brain, making it bleed and swell. It's a clenched fist inside your skull, and you can no longer prise it open to get to the thoughts it conceals. You're becoming hopelessly confused. Your skin has taken on the texture and hardness of wax. Your eyes are freezing too. Soon you'll be a whitening statue. All around you is supercooled water vapour that normally can't find an energy gradient to slide down, but it feels your presence and rushes towards you in delight. It passes from invisible gas to solid in an instant with a tiny crystalline snap. Listen closely and you can hear the crackling inside your ears. And is that a faint halo of ice particles that's formed about your body, or is it just your soul exchanging place with the wisps of cirrus stretching out lazily and flicking up their tails just above your head? 
Cirrus are said to run before the storm. They precede the front. I never heeded that warning. I never raised an arm and pointed to the threat blowing in from our future. Not like Susan. There was a knock on my hotel door, and I stopped typing an angry email to the organisers. I opened the door. The young woman from that first breakfast stood there. She was still wearing the bright green puffer jacket, and it struck me as odd that she must have come through the warm hotel lobby, into a stuffy lift, and along an even warmer corridor without taking it off. She spoke first. Hello, she said loudly and clearly, extending her hand. I'm Susan Lastrammer. I need to talk to you about your work. Well, that's why we're all here, I said, shaking her hand. She didn't take her hand out of mine. She gripped and squeezed my fingers surprisingly hard, and she looked at me as if she were trying to signal something. Then she moved close to me, put her mouth against my ear, and whispered. Dr. Forrester, she said, we're in danger. I smiled and pulled my hand away gently. I stepped back from her. Please come in, I said. I can assure you there's no soldiers on duty here, at least not at the moment. No, she said, stepping inside and pushing the door shut behind her. She leaned back against it as if she wanted her weight to keep it closed. Then she moved suddenly, walking into the bathroom. She turned on the shower and the basin taps. For good measure, she flushed the toilet. Then she beckoned me. Normally, I would have laughed. But that day had been different and unsettling enough to make me want to know. So I let her put her face against my cheek again. Not from terrorists, she whispered, faint against the background hiss and gurgle of the water. She drew a deep breath. It's far worse than that. The Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Lidament. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Lidament. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and the Pangolins. <laughs> <laughs>